Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, if you enjoy shows like The Wire or True Detective or Law and Order, or if you enjoy film noir, there's one guy you can thank for that. His name is Dashiell Hammett, and he was a writer during the 1920s and 30s and through the 40s, and he is the guy who created the modern detective. He was the man who created one of the most iconic masculine anti-heroes, Sam Spade, who uh, started off in a book, later became a, a movie hero played by Humphrey Bogart and the Maltese Falcon. But Dashiell Hammett, he, yeah, he created, uh, he took the detective genre and brought it into the modern era. And, and the reason he was able to do that was that he himself was a detective before he became a writer. He was a private eye for the Pinkerton Detective Agency in his early days. And a lot of the uh, the stories that he he published and wrote were inspired by his own experience or the experiences of, of other PIs that he knew and uh, about. But the thing is, there's not that much out there about Dashiell's Hammett time as a Pinkerton detective. Um, so my guest today, he wanted to find out all about this career and what made Dashiell Hammett Dashiell Hammett. And his name's Nathan Ward. He wrote a book called The Lost Detective, Becoming Dashiell Hammett. And I had to get him on the podcast because I'm a huge Dashiell Hammett fan. I'm a huge uh, detective novel fan from that time, Raymond Chandler, all those guys. And today on the podcast, we're going to discuss how Dashiell, or Dashiell, we'll talk about that, how you pronounce his name in a bit, became Dashiell Hammett and how his experience as a Pinkerton detective paved the way for the modern American detective novel and modern America detective television and cinema. If you love this sort of thing, this genre of literature and movies or cinema, you're going to love this podcast. So without further ado, Nathan Ward, The Lost Detective. All right. Hey, Nathan Ward, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, uh, your your book is about, it's called The Lost Detective. It's a biography of Dashiell Hammett. And we just were having this inter- interesting conversation uh, before we got on here on how do you pronounce this? So I always pronounce it Dashiell, uh, but there's controversy about that. Well, it's not controversy so much as like the family says Dashiell. He said Dashiell, and it's originally a, a, a French name, the Dashiell who came over um, in the uh, 18th century on his mother's side. But um, I just grew up saying Dashiell, saying it the wrong way. And so, I, you know, when I remember to, if there's, you know, if his family's in the audience, I'll say Dashiell. But I <laughs> normally I just say Dashiell like everyone else. All right. So, okay, I, I'm going to say Dashiell, too. I was, like, going into this I, thing. That's fine. We, saying, we can dumb it down. All right. right? I like that. <laughs> I like your style. All right. So, Dashiell Hammett uh, is one of the most influential American writers. But a lot of people don't know who he is, but they probably know who his creations are? For example, Sam Spade. Uh, you know, he wrote the Malt. You know, he wrote the Maltese Falcon. Introduced Sam Spade to the American uh, uh, icons of American masculinity, uh, the Thin Man. But the thing is, he he was really highly influential. But there's not that much out there about Dashiell Hammett's life. Why is that? Well, there are several uh, full biographies. Uh, 
uh, one of which the official one by Dan, Diane Johnson uh, was, you know, commissioned by uh, Lillian Hellman, his longtime companion. Uh, and in that book, which is the longest one, um, there was an agreement that Lillian Hellman herself had to appear pretty early in the book. So poor Diane Johnson had to <laughs> get to get him to his early 30s where he met Lillian Hellman in order for their life together to be take you know the rest of the book. And so there's uh, then there's a very very good book by Richard Lehman that does his whole life but these are like they're like um I compare it to cross country trains and uh, his early life as a detective is just like one stop where you could get off and that's what I chose to do is is uh, uh, is to really get, immerse myself in this early period of his life and see if there was anything uh, still to be found out about what kind of detective he really was because that was part of his authenticity was that he had been an actual Pinkerton detective before he became the consummate detective Amer uh, writer. Well, that's what separates him from all the other ones, right? None of the other really famous detective novelists weren't detectives themselves. I'm talking like Raymond Chandler or any of those other guys. That's right. I mean, it helps that those guys, I mean, he, he wrote better better than most of them, too. I mean, you wouldn't have heard of him if he was just a Pinkerton who tried writing <laughs> about his his uh, Pinkerton adventures and he couldn't write. You know, it's uh, the, the the talent was there from somewhere else. Yeah. So let's talk about this Pinkerton agent, because this is something that I've, you know, you've heard about the Pinkertons. I, I remember, I mean, I talk about them and um, you hear about them in when you study like labor unions and things like that in school. And I remember the Pinkerton showed up in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but I didn't know much about what they did. Why did the Pinkerton agency, detective agency exist? I mean, it seems like they took on cases that law enforcement should have done, but why was it that Pinkerton that did this? Well, it wouldn't have been able to grow as it did uh, in Europe. It, uh, Alan Pinkerton was a Scottish immigrant. He came over here. He was a barrel maker. And uh, one day he solved a smuggling ring. I mean, uh, broke a smuggling ring uh, uh, in Illinois. And the local merchants then tried to hire him to solve other cases. And he um, eventually chucked his, his barrel making business for uh, starting his own agency. He was the first American uh, detective agency, uh, and it grew because you had all these emerging towns around, you know, rural America, and one of the last things you can add is a real police department. You might have a sheriff, you might have a marshal who visits sometimes, but you don't have a full... Uh, police department, as we now understand it, um, so that the Pinkertons would would be hired to come to your town, take care of this gang that was bothering the local businesses, and they could they could follow them over um, city or state lines in a way that a that a local uh, a local agency could not. Uh, and that was one of the, once the towns uh, you know along the west had to, had established had grown up a little bit. They didn't need the Pinkertons as much for that kind of stuff. And the Pinkertons um, got into um, uh, railroad work. Um, you know, they would uh, put a guy in your um, the, the cafe car of your of your train and watch for pilferage among the employees. And they got into, that's when they got into more of the labor stuff. Um, they would uh, insert a guy secretly onto the strike committee at your factory and tell you what the plans were for the strike, you know, day by day. Uh, and then increasingly that's where the they followed the money and that's where it got it, where it was, was in the big corporate accounts like that, uh, strike breaking, uh, the, you know, the, the ugly, uh, world war one era stuff that people associate with the Pinkertons. Now pe people usually know that the, the strike breaking era stuff, or they know it from Butch Cassidy, but, but the, the earlier, um, uh, the earlier uh, rural kind of uh, cases are less familiar. And I was, it was fun. It was fun to go to, uh, read through the Pinkerton archives, and you know they just have all the op reports um, that they wanted you to see uh, from the 19th century. You can see them, all the outlaw cases, all the 
bank robber cases and that kind of stuff. It's uh, it's enormously fun to read. Yeah, and why did the Pinkertons go away? Was it because the FBI, like national, that didn't exist yet? And yeah, that's it didn't right. exist. Yet, but that's is that kind of what contributed to its demise? Well, uh, it, I mean, they didn't they didn't go away. They they're they're sort of uh, I think they're owned by a Swedish company now, and they just do sort of security work, international corporate security work. Uh, and they don't answer letters from scholars. That's uh, <laughs> the two things I know about them. You learned that, okay. <laughs> They've never acknowledged that that Hammett worked for them, uh, and his his actual reports that he w- w- would have written as as, a, as an operative have never emerged anywhere. And I mean, they were written under aliases. I mean, uh, not aliases. Uh, you know, you would be op number seven or op number twenty, or you know, yeah. Uh, and and I my theory is um, I mean it's if it wasn't a fire which is what people always say when something disappears uh, I, I think that uh, the client was the owner of these reports in the, especially in your uh, delicate labor cases and I'm sure uh, that if he did that kind of work. Um, this, you know, my secret hope is that his reports are in some corporate archive somewhere, and nobody knows who wrote who wrote them. Uh, but they wouldn't be still with the Pinkertons. That's what I'm. That's what I'm trying to get at. Gotcha. They would be the, the client. Yeah. So I mean, if there's if there we you weren't able to like access the reports that Hammett uh, wrote, or and the Pinkertons disavow that Hammett ever worked for him, I. How did you research this book? Well, they, yeah, they won't say one way or the other. They just won't confirm it. I okay. don't know le- legally why that's to their advantage, but they just uh, have left it. Uh, I guess they can't prove it one way or the other. That's maybe maybe why. Yeah. I mean, they're, the, the, the papers from the specific offices that he worked at, the Baltimore office, the Spokane office, the Seattle office, um, and the San Francisco office, uh, those are not in, among the collected papers in the National Archives that they donated. So it is very hard to, um, you know, uh, prove certain things that he said. Yeah, so how did you, I mean, what was the research involved? I mean, how did you figure out that he worked in certain places? Was it just diary entries, letters that Hammett wrote? Uh, how did you, what was your research process like? For well, there were, there were letters, but... Um, he didn't save uh, his letters uh, the way you would want him to. He moved a lot in his life, uh, and he lived in a lot of hotels, and he pitched them, you know? So there's letters. If someone kept the letters he wrote, then that, that's great. And he, there was a book of his letters um, that you know, his wife kept and various girlfriends kept. And, um, that's good, but you don't get a lot of correspondence back and forth. Uh, the, the the surest way I had of knowing where he lived when was his um, his army medical file. Because he got tuberculosis in the army, um, a nurse would have to come by and and um, give him an examination uh, every few months to determine his the amount of disability he should get. So sometimes he's 40% disabled and sometimes he's 60% disabled. So that, you know, you could see his health go up and down throughout um, the 20s. Uh, and you'd know that he was getting less money when, when, his, uh, when he was healthier and more money when he was uh, near death. And you could sort of track, well, if he claimed to have worked a certain uh, very physical case, you could say, well, how could he have climbed uh, the mast of a ship and found and recovered the stolen gold if he was, you know, 60% disabled and tubercular? And so that I would get little, you know, indications of, of what was possible when. Uh, but uh, I have to say, uh, he showed up at a lot of jobs for a guy who should have just been in bed for you know, months and months at a time. I mean, he was really impressive the way he just kept trying to earn money for his family. Yeah, that's what surprised me the most because, you know, when I imagine, okay, he's a Pinkerton detective, I thought, okay, he's going to be this big kind of burly, you know, uh, Humphrey Bogart type guy. But he was actually not. I mean, yeah, like you said, he had tuberculosis uh, and then he was actually pretty small. I think he weighed 130 pounds or something like that. 
Um, but when he was sick, when he was sick, he was 130 pounds. Yeah. yeah, he should have been. He should have been 150, 160. He was, you know, six feet uh, plus, and uh, uh, but but rail rail thin, as they say. Yeah. So I mean, how long did he work at the Pinkertons? Um, what's the time frame we're talking here? Well, he he uh, he started when he was 21 in 1915. And it's not a, you know, he didn't work straight through 1922. Uh, you know, he, 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 uh, he did a couple of years. Then he entered the army right at the end of World War One, the end of 1917. And then he got the, um, uh, tuberculosis in the army. First, the, uh, he got the influenza and then that weakened him. And he was in this, uh, you know, Army hospital where all the cots were about two feet apart from each other, and so he easily caught uh, tuberculosis in there. Um, and then uh, he went back to part-time Pinkerton work uh, in the Northwest, and then uh, he went to a uh, uh, hospital for um, for cases uh, for, for TB cases, and that's where he met his wife, who was his nurse. Um, then he moved to San Francisco, uh, and he once he learned by letter that she was pregnant, he asked her to come join him and uh, get married in San Francisco. And then that's where he, he, he that was his last, um, that's 1921, the fall of 1921. So the, the, the most influential part of his life would be the six to eight months he worked as a part-time um, Pinkerton in San Francisco. That's where he learned the town. That's where he created his first stories, the the uh, Pink, the uh, Continental Op stories, and that's where ultimately he you know he created Sam Spade, and who lived in the apartment that he was living in as he wrote it. Yeah. So I mean, do we know anything about the type of work or missions? I guess quote unquote missions. We'll call them missions. Jobs he got. Like you mentioned, the you know he found. He said that he found the gold on top of a mast. Is that are we pretty safe to say that was a lot of fabrication? He was embellishing the truth. Oh yeah, people loved these stories. Later, when he was he was known as an ex detective, you know the stories just got better and better because he would be surrounded by literary people who hadn't done anything like that, and he would just be so they would eat it up. Uh, and it, of course, it helps you know. Um, uh, Solidify his legend, if that's possible as a verb, and um, uh, and, and and made him more even more authentic. Uh, and he liked telling stories. That's what that's what he fundamentally is. He's a great great storyteller. There's a there's a school of thought that he has to have been the greatest detective ever in order to be as great a detective writer as he became. And I don't believe that's true. I think you have to have learned enough to exploit it masterfully, which he did. You know, he doesn't have to have been the greatest detective of all time, but I think he was a pretty good one, and he was a very observant person, and it it was the first job he had had that rewarded being an observant person. Um, you know, he, he, he was fired from a whole lot of uh, menial jobs before he entered the Pinkertons, uh, and it was the first one that stuck. Uh, then he uh, he got tuberculosis, and, and and once he finally was too uh, sick to to you know even get to the office anymore, uh, he started sending out stories to make money. So had- the way uh, the way I know that is because the nurses that visited him would file reports. You know, first of all, that's how you know where he was living at certain months. And at one point, he bragged to. The nurse that was visiting him that he was making uh, some extra money as a short story writer, and you know I don't think it was in his interest to say that because you know you want her to say that you should get the maximum <laughs> uh, disability, right? So he, but he, but he obviously was so uh, giddy about his new success that he he told her about it and 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 so there you could exactly date you know when he was writing what. And uh, and so on. It was, uh, you know, if I didn't have the the army medical file, I, I really don't know how I could have done this book. Yeah. So many ga- gaps in his life, and it, it's sort of like the biography of his illness. 
So how did he decide writing? Was it just like, is the only thing I can do in bed in my house? Was that what the, was it sort of necessity that he decided on that? Or he had an inclination for storytelling and that's what drew him to that? Well, I mean, I think he was a, a good storyteller in general. Uh, there's no uh, evidence before he entered the Pinkertons that he wanted to be a writer. Um, I think he had a, a mother who told him he could be whatever he wanted, which helps. Um, but I don't think she told him what, what he should be in particular. Uh, so when he, but he spent, he always was a big reader. And I, I think uh, the, the most true quote that uh, is ascribed to him as he came, he would, he came back from the San Francisco public library, having read a bunch of uh, pulp magazines in the reading room there. And he said sort of contemptuously, I could do that. And meaning also that he would know what he was talking about. Unlike the people who were writing those, those fanciful detection stories. And uh, it turned out that he could. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about these pulp magazines in a bit here um, because it's, it's really, I think it's a lost, forgotten part of American literary history or overlooked. Um, but talk about like what, how did his experience as a Pinkerton help him as a writer? And I'm not just talking about he, he was able to get, he had some um, experiences that he could call upon to help his stories, but you even make the case in the book that his, the reports he had to write as a Pinkerton op helped him develop the style of writing that uh, he became famous for. Yes, yeah, so once I once I um, learned more about how the Pinkerton agency actually functioned, like once you learned um, where people would be assigned from around the country for particular cases and uh, what kind of uh, jobs your average op would be assigned to do. Um, I got to reading the op reports of of the other uh, other uh, operatives, um, the ones that are surviving, and there really was a certain literary style, uh, house style, um, starting with um, not being judgmental in writing about, um, you know, these uh, street guys and and uh, rogues that they had to be interested in to to, um, to solve these crimes. And the, and the whole point of, Al, of uh, Alan Pinkerton's approach, as opposed to, say, you know, the Sherlock Holmes approach, uh, was assimilation, assimilation with, with criminals. And there is no better way to learn uh, what he learned than uh, having to pass yourself off among, among, uh, among uh, rough types. Uh, and the discipline of writing up what you see every day for not just the client, but the supervisors who would sometimes um, edit what you had written to the client's liking, that experience, it's, I, I saw it as, as like a newspaper. And I compared him to uh, Ernest Hemingway at the same time working at the Kansas City Star. Uh, those two institutions did not teach those guys how to write. I mean, they brought, they came there with their gift, but it was a place where their, um, their, uh, uh, observing power and, uh, and, 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 and um, lyrical ability was rewarded day after day. And it, and it, and it only could only have increased their confidence in what they were doing. Uh, so that's 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 uh, that's how I looked at it, as, as opposed to um, the you know the old way of trying to account for his style was you know these English professors would would strain themselves trying to prove that he must have read this Hemingway story in the public library in 1923, and then that excited his imagination and to writing uh, short clipped street dialogue, you know, I mean, there was a certain amount of it that was in the air in America in general, because people wanted to sound wised up because they'd been to the war and the war, uh, made people, uh, you know, more cynical. Uh, but I just don't, I don't see it. I don't see it just coming from reading, although he'd read a lot. I think it, it was this experience, um, 
uh, as, a, as a Pinkerton op that, um, that really honed him. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme, cargo capacity means more room for your gear, and there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. So how did, um, are there any specific real experiences that he had as a Pinkerton op that ended up in some of the stories that he, he wrote? Well, um, let's see. Um, there's, um, there's, there are two things that that come up again and again and again in his stories, and then one is uh, uh, his very first story uh, was um, 
was radical in that it starts with uh, not a Pinkerton op, but a, a, a an operative for a, a, a fictional agency um, on a river in Burma, and he's been chasing this um, thief for I don't know if it's two or three years. Um, and uh, since they were both in New York, and uh, and it opens w- with him, uh, he's 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 cornered his man, and you know in the the, the con- contemporary stories of the time, you know it would be you know he would be totally uh, admirable, and he would get his man and and bring him back, and uh, instead the story ends with him being offered this bribe. If you come into the jungle with me, I will share my ruby, my stolen ruby uh, collection with you. And it ends with him thinking it over. And that's the end of the story. And and this I found, um, uh, he, he, Hammett himself uh, was once... Um, trailing a guy named Finsterwald uh, from one state to another, who was uh, who was accused of um, uh, stealing jewels, and uh, finally the guy <laughs> came up to him uh, on a park bench where Hammett thought he was discreetly watching him in the park, and said, uh, "Don't you look familiar? <laughs> Do I know you from somewhere?" And it was because he'd been following him from state to state. And so, of course, he was familiar. Uh, and they got to talking, and the guy started to offer him part of his uh, his scam. And Hammett then uh, turned him in, and then he was arrested when he arrived where he was going. Uh, that's not as, as dramatic as what he made of it in uh, his first story, but you see it... Um, Throughout his his uh, other stories, where where a woman will come up and try to seduce the detective who throws her over, and then it you know he perfected it and perfected it until the Maltese Falcon has the most famous example, and then there, uh, it's loyalty to his his um, his dead partner that um, gives him the strength to to turn down the offer. But uh, I think there's, you know, events like that that he would just then refashion and refashion, and uh, and you know, each time it wasn't perfect, and he would do it again. He had a lot of themes that he would he would return to until he had gotten it right. Whereas other people would be afraid they were repeating themselves, he was sort of like perfecting it. Yeah, and I guess you make the case too that uh, some of the detectives that he worked with, even some of the bosses he worked for. Uh, ended up in some of his short stories uh, as, I guess, they, they inspired characters in the stories. I guess the one I'm thinking about is The Old Man, right, in his Continental Off series. Yes, The, the Old Man, uh, again, in um, the uh, other biographical works, there's this assumption that The Old Man was based on uh, Phil Giac, uh, who had been his uh, supervisor in uh, San Francisco. But when I looked into Phil Giac's actual biography and description, he was like 40 years old and uh, short and fat, uh, more like the Continental Op. And, uh, but, but Hammett had said that at, uh, at some uh, dinner, uh, and so people just believed it. Uh, I think that his, the old man who was described as having a, you know, white mustache and, a, and being a glowering older figure in his 70s much more uh, resembled the most famous Pinkerton um, uh, of all, who wasn't an actual Pinkerton family member, um, uh, McParland, James McParland, who was the, the, uh, the operative who, who, um, who cracked the uh, Molly Maguire ring. Gotcha. All right, so uh, Hammett broke, he cut his teeth writing with these pulp fiction magazines. And like I said, it's often forgotten part of American literary history. I mean, what sort of stuff would people find in the pulps? I mean, what kind of stories, besides the detective stuff? I mean, was it just sort of lowbrow? Well, originally, they, they, um, 
they did everything. You know, they'd have horror, they'd have, um, you know, weird tales, they'd have uh, um, uh, sort of erotica, uh, not like erotica now, but um, uh, what they called, there was a magazine called Saucy Tales, um, <laughs> things like that, you know, and, and, uh, uh, and, you, and westerns, westerns were, were, were big. And and Hamill loved westerns, and there's a certain uh, critical school that sees the detective story as just the western come into urban setting. Uh, and there's you know there's there's something to that, uh, which is why he would play jokes on that. Like when he has one where the Continental Op leaves San Francisco and he goes to Arizona and he has to ride a horse around as a rustling gang and everything, and he can't ride the horse. And you know he he would make fun of the genres he was writing about at the same time. That's one of the great um, uh, misunderstood things about him is you know, how funny he is. And it's, you know, it's okay to send up the thing that you are also participating in at the same time. And I think that makes some people uh, uncomfortable. They're like, well, is this serious or not? He's like making fun of it at the same time. And uh, he's just, you know, he was always amusing himself. His, his, his work is full of in-jokes to himself, just to amuse himself, starting with the Continental um, Agency, which is his mythical... Uh, version of the Pinkerton Agency, because he first worked in the Continental Building in Baltimore. That's where the Pinkertons were. Gotcha. Yeah, you can really see his humor shine through in The Thin Man, I think. Was, yes. It's a hilarious. The, the back and forth dialogue is amazing, that book. Especially that one. And that's where he sort of had, uh, he's sort of given up on the, 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 the classic detective novel by then. He's, it's like, that's like a... Um, it's hard to it's hard to describe, but you know the the the, the protagonist is an ex detective, the writer is an ex detective, and he's out of his element. But um, uh, you know he's just there to have a good time, and his wife keeps telling him to go back to what he used to do to solve the crime. It's a it's sort of a, it's a funny uh, uh, self referential thing. So let's talk about uh, Sam Spade because this is the most iconic. Uh, character of Dashiell Hammett, thanks to Humphrey Bogart. Where did Sam Spade come from? That have any? Did his Pinkerton experience have any influence on the creation of Sam Spade? I, I really don't think so. I think Sam Spade is, as he said, he's a dream man. He's what all the guys he used to work with uh, wished they could be or, or thought they sometimes were. That's how he described it. Uh, uh, the thing about... Sam Spade, you can in Pinkerton terms, you can see him as the absolute uh, product of assimilation. I mean, he's so assimilated with criminals that you really don't know what he's going to do. Like, is he crook, crooked or is he pretending to be crooked? You know, that's how he plays both sides to, to do his job, is that uh, he's absolutely unpredictable except for his loyalty to the client. No matter how scummy, he'll still take their money uh, and 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 uh, and give it his all. But you don't know you don't know what he really thinks about anything, except uh, when he's pushed to it. As he says, uh, when a man's partner is killed, he's supposed to do something about it. So there's a there's the buddy element in the end, but. This is the same guy who was, who was sleeping with his partner's wife before while he was alive. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he's not like your best friend, but he does have a point. He does have a, a, an outer limit. Yeah. So he's um, and because he's so unpredictable, I just think he seems more lifelike than all the uh, the the copycat detectives that he inspired. I just there's something about Sam Spade who he just he's so alive on the page in the way that. That nothing Mickey Spillane ever did, uh, was, you know, is, is the same. It's just um, uh, he, he's 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 mercurial, but he's fascinating, and he has and he has no history. There's no, you know, you don't find out about his childhood. You don't know his. There's no inner monologues, and yet everybody has an idea of what Sam Spade is about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the only thing we do know that uh, that inspired Sam Spade, or part of the character of Sam Spade, is Sam Spade's apartment. I thought this was really interesting. So, oh yeah, that's right. Can you yeah. talk talk a little bit about Sam Spade's apartment as 
um, Dashiell Hammett's apartment? Well, um, when he when he wrote that book and uh, Red Harvest, he was living in a, a basically a 500 square foot uh, studio on Post Street, uh, uh, which is still there in San Francisco, and uh, he had originally ended up there because his he'd have these uh, flare-ups of his tuberculosis, and the doctors said he had to live apart from his young children because uh, it's you know it, it's unhealthful, uh, and so he, he you know he moved uh, he moved around San Francisco, and sometimes he would come back and live. he. Um, uh, he was living in this little apartment, uh, writing his brains out. I mean, it actually allowed him to write the novels that he finally wrote. Um, and uh, the, uh, to me, the most um, uh, moving part of writing this was there's this famous uh, part of the book. Uh, it's known as the, the, the Flitcraft uh, Parable. I mean, he didn't call it that, but that's what people call it, in which Sam Spade tells a story about a man named Flitcraft who was on his lunch hour one day and a beam fell and just missed killing him. It, and it hit the side, sidewalk next to him and like a piece of cement hit his cheek. Uh, and he was so unnerved by this that he had to abandon his life as it was. And um, he, you know, he left his wife and his child, and and went relocated to another town where he he started up exactly the same kind of life. Um, so the point of the story is, uh, as, as Spade tells it, he adjusted to beams falling, and then he adjusted to them no longer falling in his new life. And then Spade is hired to go find him by Mrs. Flickcraft, and he does, but he leaves them alone rather than bring him back, which you think would be the spade-like thing to do. He's like, he's a bulldog. Uh, if you're hired to go retrieve somebody for, for, you know, and why doesn't he bring him back? And I've always thought that was strange. Uh, until I realized at that moment that, that Hammett was writing it, he w- was living apart from his family, and he was contemplating leaving San Francisco altogether and going to New York. Uh, to, you know, where his, his book was going to come out and uh, he was going to get some more movie money and then just start his life apart from them. Uh, and the, the Flitcraft parable is, is Hammett really talking to himself about the, this decision. Uh, and I just found that very moving because, you know, when you, when you read these books about an artist you are supposed to root at every point for them to <laughs> move through their life to the part where they become the great artist that you got interested in in the first place. And at this point, I, you know, as a father and a writer, I, you know, I felt some of the the um, uneasiness that he must have felt. You know, he really made a choice, and he, what he did was he moved his wife and his daughters. Uh, to um, Hollywood, where they were supposed to just wait for him to become a success in Hollywood and come back and live with them. Well, he never lived with them, but he did visit them there, and he did take care of them. Uh, But he lived the life that you associate with him um, ever since, you know, the Lillian Hellman life and the going to parties and um, hanging around in Hollywood and drinking too much. Yeah. That's where that started. Yeah. He he basically did the the whole F. Scott Fitzgerald thing, just write movies and drink a lot. Yes. So, what's, but I think unlike unlike Scott Fitzgerald, I think in Hammett's case, he had come so close to death with tuberculosis that I really don't think he expected to live very long. I, yeah. I mean, maybe uh, you know years, but not like years and years, and so. The, the miscalculation he made was that he would live as long as he did. You know, that's the, the, the mystery is always, oh, why did he stop writing, which actually he stopped publishing, but he didn't stop writing. Um, I really think he, he he thought he could, you know, he could still go um, at any time. Yeah. So what's, uh, 
I mean, we've talked about Hammond and his days at Pinkerton and how it influenced his career. But what's uh, what's Hammond's legacy today? I mean, what authors did he influence, and where can we see the fingerprints of Hammett's and and ha- of Hammett's in pop culture right now? Well, I mean, uh, uh, I think he's he's in uh, most cop shows. Uh, the the what he what he what he started with the giving all the procedural background stuff. Um, you know, then we drove over to here. Then we watched their house for a while. Then we uh, followed her into the supermarket. Things that before him would have been thought to be dull and um, no one wants to read that. They just want a nice uh, murder mystery set in an estate. You know, and the and the and the you round up the swells who were at the, at the house that weekend, and one of them must have been the killer. And what he did was, uh, with his his early op stories, which were, you know, uh, they, they were like making literature out of the op reports that he had written before. I mean, it's the same um, uh, format of, of uh, following the detective around and making literature out of the tedium of investigation. And so once he introduced that, then it became like a competitive sport, like who would have the most (laughs) authentic background. And so uh, then by the 40s, you have uh, detective movies where they're talking about um, the skeleton of the corpse. And obviously she was less than 24 years old because look at the development of the femur and, you know, that kind of stuff. And that, all the way to CSI. I mean, I think that's, he started that procedural, um, uh, form and then, or look at something like, um, uh, uh bone. Is it, what's the show with it? Uh, well, any show where there's a like a, a man and a woman like flirting on the crime scene, solving crimes, it's all from the Thin Man. Yeah, you know, um, Macmillan and Wife or uh, Castle. Castle. Or, yeah, yeah uh, but that's that's another trope of his. Uh, I don't know that he'd love all those shows, but I think you can definitely um, trace it directly to him. Uh, True Detective would be uh, unthinkable without him. Uh, I don't think he would have liked this season, but the first, the first season. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know, uh, and he's certainly in, uh, in uh, you know, Michael Connelly, uh, Dennis Lennon. You know, he's in he's in a lot of uh, a lot of stuff out there now. Yeah. Well, cool. Hey, well, Nathan. I, I, people mix him up with with Chandler, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, Chandler was his biggest fan, and uh, they don't write the same. I think where it where it goes down, what it back to is Humphrey Bogart playing both their heroes. Yeah, and well, people mix them up because Humphrey Bogart played both. Uh, uh, the same way um, people mix up Davy Crockett and uh, Daniel Boone because Fess Parker played them both. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, they don't they haven't always read the books, so they uh, they rely on the on the movies. I've also noticed that. Um, when the Maltese Falcon was uh, uh, chosen by the Wall Street Journal as like the book of the month for online discussions, it was clobbered for Sam's sexism, which is like, a, you know, I don't know what they were expecting to read, but I just couldn't imagine people having the same reaction with an old movie. There's somehow people are smarter now about film than they are about old novels, which is, I think, sad. But I just, I couldn't imagine uh, people saying the same things about the film of the book. Yeah. Uh, that was just my, that's just my impression. Interesting. I think he also, he also um, invented uh, what we call noir um, with the Maltese Falcon. Uh, uh, that whole, um, it's it's removed, and then he he zooms in on the ashtray on Sam's desk, and then uh, Sam rolls another cigarette, and then it's so atmospheric uh, in a way that movies would not be for another ten years. Then you know because the the film The Maltese Falcon was in was in 1941, and, and you know he, he wrote that in 1929. Uh, but the, you know all the noir stuff in film 
was years after what the writers were doing in the Black Mask and the Pulps and True Detective magazine. It just took it took that much longer for the movie audience to be wised up by uh, uh, the Depression uh, and World War II to to want that kind of film. I, I don't know. I mean, I can't really explain. I'm not a cinema person, but uh, I definitely see uh, what became film noir in uh, the Maltese Falcon, and, and not really before that. Well, fascinating. Well, hey, the book, Nate, the book I'm, I'm, I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, Nathan Ward, this has been a fascinating conversation. Where can people learn more about the book? Just uh, Amazon. Uh, Amazon's good. Bloomsbury. Uh, yeah, or, or, um, you mean where else can I buy it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This Amazon's as good as any. Yeah. All right. Well, Nathan Ward, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. All right. Well, thank you. My guest today was Nathan Ward. He's the author of the book, The Lost Detective, Becoming Dashiell Hammett, or Dashiell Hammett. And you can find that on Amazon.com or bookstores everywhere. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, as always, I'd really appreciate it if you take the time to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Help us give us some feedback on how we can improve the show as well as let the other people know about the podcast. And as always, thank you for your continued support of the podcast. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.